Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and this is the first bonus episode of the season. It brings me so much joy that I get to share this chat that I had with Foy Vance, a Northern Irish musician who I've loved for years now. I've known Foy for a long while now, and in a lot of ways, he's the kind of guy you hope to meet on a night out. You know what I mean, he's that guy who will make you laugh until there's tears in your eyes, and who will also give you the shirt off his back if it got too cold as you were leaving the bar. He's also a phenomenal musician who plays every gig as though it's his last. He recently put out a new album called Signs of Life, a body of work that was made as Foy got his shit together. This episode is special for many reasons, a major one being how much Foy doesn't hold back on sharing the depths of darkness that surrounded his life post-tour. This episode also signifies the importance of hope, how light can come to us in the times we need it the most, but we just need to be willing to put in the actual work. Before we get into it, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at newexchangepod.com so you don't miss out on new episodes. Also, Foy will be touring the U.S. this November with a date in New York at Rockwood Music Hall on the 16th of November. Trust me when I say you won't want to miss out on that. Truth be told, this is the most personal talk I've ever recorded, and I feel an immense sense of gratitude towards how much Foy shared about his life, especially since it's clear how much of these experiences inspired the music. This is The New Exchange with Foy Vance. Enjoy. God, Foy, how are you getting on, man? How are you getting on today? I'm getting on all right, mate. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of we're in the middle of album cycle. It's 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 a lot quieter than it would have been a couple of years back, but still, still busy enough. Between that and three kids, busy enough around here. Jesus Christ! Like you could honestly, I'm surprised you're not trying to pitch that yet. I'm sure NBC would like buy that as a show. A Northern <laughs> Irish musician raising three kids and promoting an album like that could definitely get. <laughs> No, no. Well, it'll probably make great television, actually, because it does look like a car crash when you're close up to it. (laughs) Well, what I love about (laughs) you bringing that up, though, is like, I remember the last time we chatted, you were beautifully candid about like how you're wishing to arrive at a point in your life where you could spend more time with your family. And, you know, obviously, this was like well before the pandemic. But I couldn't help but wonder when I knew I was going to talk to you, like, how did it feel to get to have that time with your family throughout like the last year and a half? Because that must have been quite beautiful. Yeah, it was it was a godsend for sure, Ken. And, and even in general, like I'm sort of, I was really loath to talk about this when the pandemic first kicked off. But in hindsight, I, I was very aware of how horrible it was for the world, horrible it was for all industries, horrible it was for people's lives, let alone their livelihoods. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, however, being speaking from a solely blinkered, here's my reality perspective that when the lockdown happened it kind of i loved it i loved the fact that we were slower that we were quieter that there was less people you know that i quite liked that it suited me completely fine because i was in london when it first happened and i'm used to living here and in, in, in Aberfeldy in scotland where i live now uh i've been living here 10 years or whatever we went to london for my daughter to go to a school there we were in london when it first kicked off and i could hardly deal with london and I find London more palatable the second we went into lockdown because it was just a lot quieter, <laughs> you know? It was easier to deal with. So, like, you know, I hate to say it because I know so many people have lost, you know, 
lost all kinds of stuff in this bullshit. But personally speaking, it was, uh, I took it in my stride. It really worked out with the universe. It was like the stars aligned. You know, it was, I was meant to be quiet in 2020. You know yeah. what? Like, honestly, that's actually, that's come up quite a bit throughout like this series of other people I've talked to. And even with myself where, I mean, it's definitely a bit of an extreme in how it came about. But I actually remember vividly the Christmas holidays of like 2019. And just kind of taking stock of what the last couple of years have been, because I realized it had been about like I think around ten years or so of being involved in the music industry and traveling like every year and like you know working like you know ten to twelve hour days and feeling very grateful, but just thinking naturally like you know being able to slow down a bit would be nice. And then of course March happened in 2020. It's like well this is beyond what I asked for, but especially in like metropolitan areas like you were talking about London, me here in New York. And most of the time when I travel is to go to other major cities. It's like major cities are beautiful, lovely places full of culture and like interesting people. But there is this aspect of a pace that you have to find yourself, you know, molding yourself to. And just thinking about what it is to be human, it can be so intense. Like you can find yourself needing to catch up with your own thoughts. I know exactly what you mean, brother. Exactly what you mean. When I lived in London, it was like living in a washing machine. I couldn't, you know what I mean? It really was like living on a washing machine. But listen, up here, I walk out my back door, put my feet in the grass, look at the mountains surrounding me, look up at Shehalyan Mountain just over there in Ben Lowers and know that for 130, 138 miles after that mountain, there's nothing but mountains. That's a nice feeling. That That's a nice amazing. feeling. It's, it's, it's heaven here. It really is. I, I, love, I love this part of Scotland. Do you know it's one of the trippiest experiences? And I only notice it when I leave New York for a while and I come back. Like uh, most of the jobs I've ever had have been in Manhattan and um, people see it in movies all the time, but it's like, you know, pre-pandemic times, the streets are always full. And one of the weirdest experiences that you get attuned to while living here, but it is really strange, is like you'll be in a building, like a corporate office, and you go downstairs and then you're going out of the building and then you have to find yourself kind of getting into like, you know, the rhythm of people walking and it's just mental. And then like being removed from that and looking back at it, it's kind of like, wow, that's how I used to live. <laughs> like, it's just madness. Yeah. Listen, London was like 28 days later. You ever seen that film? Of course. Killian, I mean, Killian Murphy is one of the best actors of all time. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think, I think he's legit. Yeah, killer. London felt like that to me. It was just so weird. Like, so I, I, I didn't do anything really but get up in the morning, hop on the train, go to the studio, stay there at about six, come home, put the way in the bed. You know, I was either at home or at the studio. So when lockdown happened, it cut out the train bit. So I just had to drive to the studio. And the first day I drove, I didn't know whether to be excited by the lack of traffic or freaked <laughs> out. You know what I mean? I was thinking like yeah. any minute, like, you know, there's people with war paint in their face are going to come out here and, you know, start lighting sofas on fire in the middle of the road. It just felt like <laughs> London felt like it was about to go crazy. I yeah. mean, crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I know it's a heavy question to ask, but I love to know, how do you find yourself feeling about your job as a musician after having this time to reflect? Because for as long as I've known you, it's been like since uh, 2013, I was just thinking about that, which is like madness to me. Like, I've only ever known you as the type of person where your life as a musician is really the only thing that fits for you. Like, it's not a matter of like, it was like a career path or an occupation to like think through. It's like, you feel the music. So I wonder how you felt about reflecting on like the past and the present, you know? 
you know what? I guess there's a there's a, there's a lot in that question. Uh, you know, for instance, I don't miss, I don't miss touring. I don't miss uh, I miss I miss the unity that you get when you when you're in a room yeah. and wherever the music's coming from and you're channeling something and it's going out and everyone else is feeling the, the energy too and there's a there's a unity in that and that's hugely uplifting and I miss that moment, but I don't miss being away from my family. I don't miss living out of a suitcase. I don't miss endless flights, uh, take my belt off and on. And, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't miss backstage doors and, you know, fridges full of beer at 12 o'clock in the day when you've nothing to do till six. You know, it's, uh, I don't miss any of that. And if anything, I think the artistry has been more prevalent. You know, uh, I think I've, I've dug down into writing a bit more. Kind of, I feel like it's full circle, like a sign of life, if you like. You know, the, the yeah. cyclical thing, like when I started out writing, I, I, didn't, I wasn't writing because I wanted people to know who I was or to make money or to do, you know, I was writing because I had to. I, I, it, that's what was going on. That's so why I wrote. And I wanted to exhibit that, if you like, you know, put my work up on the walls in certain places. But it was never about, you know, I never really conceived of like doing it forever or, or, or not like it being a job. It never felt like a job to me. Yeah. In the beginning. And I, I got lost in that for years and years. And then through the, you know, when you, when you, when your fan base does start to grow and then your, your, your kind of business team start to grow and there's more ideas, there's more things happening. You, you start being more aware of what's going on in the industry. Whereas I like to be in music. I like the industry to be the industry and I'll stay here in music. Just back to following my interest, irrespective of what it means or whether it does me well or does me wrong. You know, as long as I'm interested, that's true success in my opinion. It's lovely you did that, though, because, you know, with everything you just described, I mean, like, I love touring for the most part, but it's something that's always been kind of fractured within my life. And for as much as I've found myself enjoying it, something that I came to realize over time is I remember when I started doing it regularly, I would like, you know, eat bad or like, you know, party with people. And I would think to myself, like, oh, it's OK, because this is just like a temporary aspect of my life. It's not a habit. Like, I just tour like maybe a week in a month or two weeks in a month and it's every so often so it's not bad and then after a couple of years it's like oh hang on a second like I'm doing these awful things like on a daily basis and like where did that come from and you know training yourself after that while everyone else around you is still doing that and it's not like condemning people it's just like it is an active thing to step away from that so hats off to you for like figuring out what works for you thanks dude you know that I felt exactly the same to be honest when I got back from tour I the, the kind of residue of the tour was still on me, even though I was home. Yeah. Like, I only unpacked my case like three months ago. I've been off the road for years, or like, a, like since 2017, and I only packed my case. I think it was uh, late last year that I fully emptied my case. Just not only just the, the, the sort of transient nature, but the, all, like you say, all the things that you get sort of addicted to, let's just call it what it is, you know, the, all the things that you become accustomed to on a day, like it's okay to drink 10, 12 beers because they're free and they're on the rider and, you know, yeah. and everyone else is drinking them. So, you know, uh, just go for it. And it's okay to smoke, smoke some weed and, you know, whatever till whatever hours in the morning and sleep bad and eat bad. And, yeah. But that once you get off tour, I, I find when I got off tour and was home, whew, shit was revealed. It was like just, uh, yeah, my family were a mirror. Wow. You know, they were a mirror to me and it was just going like, whoa. That's how you get through a day. 
you start a day with codeine and then by one o'clock you're on the wine and then by four o'clock you're on the gin and by eight o'clock you're on the vodka and but you know you know what's going on yeah it's uh, not sustainable no it's not sustainable sir not at all cheers yeah well cheers to that well you know one of the people we had on the podcast was um the lovely ryan mcmullen and it was my second time chatting with him i met him the last time i was um in belfast and it's interesting that's where we first met right ken no we met we first here. No, we met here in New York, actually. It was, um, it was like when you were doing stuff with Glassnow and they had you play, like, I think it was maybe like a Whole Foods or something weird. Like, it, they had you play oh, somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and I remember you, like, I, you know what? I, I think everyone has a story, a, a story that's similar in regards to when they've, like, fallen in love with you as a human. But I remember they had you, like, I can't remember if it was a Whole Foods or something like that, but you were, like, commenting on it as you were playing. And I was, I was just being there thinking, like, I love this guy. Like, he's just taking the piss out of the situation. Well, what else are you going to do? I'm doing a gig in fucking Whole Foods, <laughs> in a cafe on Whole Foods. Like, people are just sitting eating their carrot cake. Shit about me. Oh, you know? God. But the reason I bring up Ryan is because, um, like, when I had him on the podcast, it was my second time chatting with him. The first time I met him was in Belfast a couple years ago. But in both instances, he uh, brought up how seeing you go about music greatly informs the way he wants to go about things. And I remember in the past talking to Ed Sheeran even, and he mentioned the same thing. And I mean, how does it feel to know that your music is leaving a mark on people? Because your music is a representation of you as a person. And like people like this, like Ryan and Ed, who are like really sound people, it's like they, they look at you and they think like, God, like I like what Floyd does. Yeah, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, I guess it's a bit affirming, but at the same time, it's like, I don't think that they're the kind of things you can hang your coat on, but like, it's, it's nice. It's, 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 that's very sweet is the first thing that comes to mind. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's lovely. Yeah. I feel the way I feel. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> I'm not always inspired by me. <laughs> well, I think what, what interests me about it is the fact that it's beyond the music. It's like the interesting thing with Ryan, when I chatted with him, like when you came up, I could tell that if he wanted if it was possible to have like an hour-long chat about you he would like he would have been fine with not talking about his own music and just talking about you for an hour oh bless well you know what him and i had a very very tight relationship for a long time because i used to manage him or co-manage him with a, a friend of mine paul hamilton oh yeah i didn't know um, that. yeah i managed him for a good few years and then it was just time to step away you know because i'm not a manager i'm not interested in management the only thing i was interested in was i saw this kid with an incredible talent but yeah. also an incredible work ethic yes i thought wow you could pinball around some bullshit scenarios back home mm. or if you're willing to put in the work we could fast track it come on tour with me i'll see if we can get, get you out on tour with some other people you know you utilize whatever contacts i have to you know get you into a tributary that's going into a bigger fucking river instead of just bouncing around here you know yeah, and he, to this day, he's still so grateful about it. And um, I need to now start asking about your music because there's a lot I want to ask you about that. And I'm curious to know because I know in the context of like how you feel about, you know, music history, you know, musicians and that. I mean, the fact that you got to actually experience physically recording at Muscle Shows is something that must have just been just so life affirming. And I wonder like how that experience contrasted with your expectations. Like, I mean, that's a dream for so many people. It was a dream for me growing up uh, and a reality for me when it was happening. You know, didn't feel like a dream then. It just felt like do the job. You know, we're here to do the job. Everyone's 
here to do the job and we went and did the job and and, and that's what I liked about it was it was a very uh, cool face sort of approach to you know just like get in there and work get your head down get the job done there wasn't much time to you know of course I geeked out here and there at things and of course I fanboyed at certain you know when I lifted up the guitar that Otis Redding wrote Doc at the Bay on yeah I had a fucking moment of course I fucking did anyone would you yeah. know and actually you know what I was just telling someone this the other day one of the coolest moments was that I was recording a song called Pain Never Hurt Me Like Love. And I was looking out the window of the vocal booth at Spooner Oldham, the same Spooner Oldham, sitting at the same Wurlitzer in the same room where he sat and came up with the riff for uh, I Never Loved a Man by Aretha Franklin. Because they were trying to capture, they were trying to capture that song morning, noon and night and they couldn't get it. And then Spooner sat at that very wee Wurlitzer that he was playing on my track or you know, I've forgotten the riff. That was a uh, that was all blues. I was singing. Way that I love you. No, what is that? That was a fuck. That was a moment, dude. That was a real moment. Just looking out, and and it was like a couple of lifetimes passed in a millisecond. Weirdly, because I didn't stop singing. You know, I listened back to the track to see was there any change in my voice there or anything because I had a moment. <laughs> but you know, there wasn't. It just must have been an internal thing. Just you know that. Wow, this is crazy. And you know what's beautiful about that? The fact that the way I feel it contrasts what, what your experience was like. What a beautiful way to be reminded that at the end of the day, like it's humans that are making these sounds where I think sometimes people can forget that, you know, just because you have the skills, if you sit for hours on something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to take it out of you. And then another human being can come and look at something and take something like a song, an idea and just take it just that extra step further. It's so lovely to be reminded of that. And you know what? See all those guys? This is the interesting thing about them. None of them are the master of their trade, so to speak. Yeah. It's, like none of, it's not like they can go out and, you know, cover a Czech Korea gig or, a, you know, go out and do some weather report music. You know, they're not, it's not like they're upper echelon, you know, musicians. They can, you know, play a John Coltrane solo on the bass or anything. You know that phrase, jack of all trades, master of none? Yeah, exactly. Have you ever heard the rest of that phrase? Wow, I don't. So I get to do this once in a while on the podcast because we're only doing audio. But you just said that now, and I made a face of absolute confusion. I didn't. I can describe people what the face I made. I yeah, I've never. Yeah, what's the rest of it? So the rest of that phrase is actually a jack of all trades and a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Oh. My mate, my mate Mark McGee told me that last week. And I couldn't, I was like, ah, shit, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because that's kind of like people with the right spirit and the right heart are better than the best player, so to speak. You know what I mean? I'm not the best singer in the world. I'm not the best songwriter in the world. I'm not the best. You know, I articulate my shit and do it and, and try and do it right and do it real. Like a jack of all and a master of none. But that's yeah. sometimes better than a master of one. <laughs> God, I'm going to now take that with me for the rest of my life. I never knew that. But I think you saying that just now leads nicely into like, you know, the songs that I've heard of this album that you're about to release into the world. And it's really special, man. It really is. And I think you're welcome. And I, I think about a song like Sapling, for example, like, I think what makes this song so special is that there's this element of storytelling that hits you in the chest. And most importantly, I feel like when I hear this song, I could tell that you have a sense of trust towards your own voice. Like, it came across in the feeling that you're putting across within the song. And I wonder if that's something that speaks to you do you feel like that's a song that showcases a sense of trust within your voice? I mean, I think every song's where I, I have to trust my voice. If I didn't trust my voice, 
it's not even it's not even so much about trust it's about yeah, i guess it is trust it's more about getting out of the fucking way really you know yeah. just getting out of the way and, and and trying to if you if you start trying to employ craft or employ technique i think you lose a bit of something you know i think it's better to just kind of lament you know like deliver just open your mouth and let it come out and 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 then when you listen back if it sounds shit then clearly you need to do something different but uh yeah, I feel comfortable, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and every song with my voice, trying to, find, trying to find the right voice for the song. It makes me think about something. I wonder if you can relate to this, but something that I've noticed over the years with like traveling with like different uh, singers and like bands is that I've noticed over the years that a lot of the times like fans' favorite show, like a concert, will be the ones that the musicians themselves thinks are one of the worst. And I wonder if you ever had that where you played a show and you're like, God, I hated this show. And then people came up to you and like, you could tell when they told you they loved it. It was like very genuine. I can't think, I can't think of a, do you know what? The only, the only situation that springs to mind, which isn't even completely in line with what you're saying, but it's the first thing that comes to my mind was in London, I was playing the, the Union Chapel oh, and it was just room. me and Hammy on drums and the PA blew out. And, uh, but it was okay because as soon as it blew out, I immediately just unplugged and stepped to the front of the stage. <laughs> and started playing acoustically, you know, and then walked up into the walk up into the up the galley and up into the uh, what do you call that? The, the, I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, the balcony. The upstairs, the mezzanine. The mezzanine, yeah. Um, and sang from up there <laughs> in the church. So it kind of, I think shit going wrong in a gig is oftentimes the shit that is the best thing about it. You know, it certainly felt like that that night to me, and and I I, I felt like people got that too. I, I don't feel like they felt like their, uh, their money wasn't well spent. You know, the PA went back on. I just had to do three, four songs like that. And actually, it was a thing that made the night. Yeah, like it made it memorable for those people, for sure. So, you know, also while prepping for this chat, I read about what was happening yeah. in your life when you wrote Sapling. Ken, that's a long way. That's a long way the story of saying you never do a bad gig. <laughs> well, you know what? Good. I've seen you. I think I've seen you, like, what, close <laughs> to, like, six or seven times now so i can attest to that i've never seen you do a bag either so you have a, a, a living testimonial in the form of me <laughs> oh i've done a bag i am joking i've done a bag when i was prepping for this chat i read about what was happening in your life when you wrote sapling and i know people can read about it online but i think it'd be beautiful for you to share what happened with your family during this time because i just you know that that really did hit me when i read that well you know it's uh I, uh, again, back to the Union Chapel in London, that was the last gig I did on the 4th of November, 2017. And I got off the road and the whole plan was to write the record, which at that time was working title Republic of Eden. And when I got off the road, like we were earlier on, we were talking about the residue of tour life. That was thick on my skin. I was still completely addicted to all kinds of shit. And like I say, my family were the mirror that, you know, once I wasn't on tour and it couldn't be hidden behind, you know, the fact that everyone else is doing what I'm doing, I'm at home and I'm still doing this. And they're going, hey, you, you don't look good. This is not, this is not sustainable. And I, uh, I guess I was going to the studio every day and trying to write. And I just couldn't write. I ended up just filing old songs and shit, doing pragmatic stuff, you know, uh, just to try and jostle something in me to see but then i realized i i you know i needed to get off 
what I was on to see clearly. And, and if I didn't, that I was risking losing everything. I was risking losing my family and risking losing the, the sort of solidarity of that. If it's a choice between music and family, you know, it's got to be family. It's got to be family. If it's a choice between anything and family, it's got to be family. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that song, that was the first one that I wrote that felt true. Up to then, I was sketching out ideas and, you know, scatting out lyrics, but I hadn't, I hadn't spoken a word that, you know, that made me cry or that made me upset, you know, that I had to really sit down and uh, chew on the lyric for because I wasn't being true. I wasn't being honest. I was covering up. I was masking. I had a mask on. So Sapling was the first song. And, you know, and it was a Sapling, you know, it, it's, it's not quite an oak yet, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's definitely growing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with me, honestly. And I mean, I was also thinking, was it um, they ended up like getting spontaneously married around that time too? Well, we got married. When did we get? Well, we got married in twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah, we got married in twenty nineteen. We yeah. uh, very secret, very secret, very private, private matter. Like, in fact, so private, my wife didn't even know. <laughs> she didn't even know we were getting married until the day before. Until yeah. the day before, I proposed on the twenty sixth of August. And, uh, and she said, yes. And I said, but here, it's on one condition. You got to marry me tomorrow in the woods. <laughs> and she said, you're out of your mind. I know, but will you do it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we had, I had flown over her soul sister, uh, Natalie Banks, who's a celebrant, you know, can marry people. She lives in Australia. I'd flown her over yeah. without Marie knowing. And we, we went up and stayed in this, with the, the White Tower out near Kenmore. And, got married under the clearest Milky Way I've ever seen in my life. And as it would happen, conceived my son, saw little signs of life himself. That's, I mean, God, I, a thousand congratulations. That makes me so happy. Because at the end of the day, it ties back to so much what we're talking about at the beginning, but that's what it's all about. Like having experiences like this that you know you're just going to carry with you for the rest of your life. Like, uh, I'm happy for does you. It matter that we're, does it matter that we're now getting divorced? No, of course <laughs> no, because no, because I mean still a good moment, can, right? <laughs> it's still a lovely moment. Well, you know what it is? Like I, I you know what I think it's hilarious. I think the people who are listening, like the their age group will depend on how they take that. So I feel like if you're a past a certain age and had certain life experiences, you recognize that regardless of what ended up happening, the fact that that happened in the past, it's still, you know, significant. There's still beauty there. Yeah, no, it was it was a remarkably beautiful uh, night, and it was it really truly was. And like I say, signs of life. Speaking of Saul and signs of life, I, I truly feel that the title track is one of the best songs that you've ever released, and it's one of those songs that grabs your attention in a way that I feel like not many songs do nowadays. And what's the story behind that one, like, and how that one came about? The story behind that one was I had that little riff, you know, that this little pedal on the, on the, the pedal on the E. I had that riff for ages and I could never get lyrics for it, but, but, you know, I knew it was something. I knew it was a song. I just, you know, and, and I like to not, again, almost like you're talking earlier, you know, about, you know, my comfortability and my voice and that I think about that and the approach, you know. I think with songwriting, with making music in general, it's about trying to not think as much as humanly possible, yeah. you know, and just try and listen, try and listen, and uh, and be and be open, you know, being like an antenna, so to speak, you know, don't don't try and impose too much on on the thing. So I let it breathe for I don't know a few weeks. It was sitting around there, and I never put a lyric on it, 
until I was sat on the sofa playing it and my wife sat down and she was pregnant with Saul, like heavily pregnant. Like it was two days before his due date. He got born later than that, actually. He stayed, he wanted to be well cooked, that kid. <laughs> he stayed like 10 days, 10, 13 days out or whatever it was. Um, anyway, so she sat down and the light was coming in through the window and caught her eyes. And she was just, I knew she was just about to tell me, you know, talk about the pregnancy or whatever. And yeah, the first lyric came, you know, then without warning, you looked in my eyes and I could tell that soon the sun was sure to rise. Ugh. Every morning, time after time, for fuck's sake. And he's also going to shit his nappy time after time. <laughs> God, I mean, just talk about like, you know, real life influencing art. Like that's so, that's fucking beautiful, man. You know, it's going to be really something for me when I see you live and I see you perform Time Standstills. And I know you have some shows coming up in the Raymond in uh, Nashville. For people who aren't familiar, that's one of the most famous venues here in the States. And I mean, when I heard, just the thought of that song in that room. Thanks, man. I'm glad you dig that one. Yeah. My manager likes that one. That one's about my manager. <laughs> Big ups to them on that yeah, one. He called me up and he just, he gave me a very loving, but very stern talking to. You know, like, son, you are pissing this up the wall. You have talent. You have a space to record. You've got a family that love you. You've got a management team that love you and would, you know, go to the ends of the earth for you. What are you doing? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Go see it. Go, go get help. Go get, see a therapist. Go to AA. Do whatever you need to do. But do something, man. Do something. Come on. Let's go. Let's make a record. Get clean. Get going. And it was, a, it was the kick in the arse that I needed, man. It really was. It was a, and that was me pretty much saying to him, well, if only time could stand still, you know, but I, I, would get it, I would get it right if I could just stop for a minute. But again, I was in the washing machine. I was in the fucking washing machine, so I couldn't. Time doesn't stand still, and you've just got to you just got to get your bearings and roll with the punches, as the great dolls say. But I respect the hell out of you for receiving that, because I think what's interesting about just you know different times that we could be in our life, it's kind of a dark and sad thing to consider. But I feel like I've recognized over time how difficult it is for adults to receive feedback from people who care about them, and sometimes it's easy for people to kind of shy away from that. So. Being able to recognize in the moment that there's someone who cares about me and is saying this because they care, that's, it's beautiful. Like, that's what, like, we need that. Everyone needs to do that, man. I know, listen, like when you're songwriting, you need to leave your ego at the door to a certain degree and your craft at the door, like I was saying earlier, you know. And I feel like I've gleaned from that. I've gleaned from that experience. That experience works in life as well. Music has taught me everything that I've ever fucking known of worth. Anything I know of worth, music taught me it. And to be able to let someone just have their say, don't get your heckles up, don't get your back up, let them say, listen to them. Maybe they're wrong, maybe they're right, but listen to them. Yeah. And decide for yourself, you know, and don't focus on what you're going to say back. So yeah, yeah, it was kind of strangely easy to just listen to my manager. In fact, I liked it. I liked it. It was the first bit of truth that I'd heard in a while. And it was honestly the catalyst of me going and getting the help. And when I got the help, I went home and I wrote that song, Sapling, the next day. So you could argue that Steve has a cut on Sapling too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a few more things that I want to talk to you about. I mean, one of the big things I knew I had to ask you about is, um, you know, because as a photographer, I always look out for striking imagery and especially with album covers. And I love the fact that you went with like a tint type photo style for the cover and it's a striking image, and I'd love to know what's the story behind the album cover, because I think it's one of those where it's like, 
there's clearly a story behind it. It's not just the willful, it's not just like something you just thought up and just there was no intent behind it. Well, you say that. <laughs> no, there, no, listen, there was intent, but the intent, I, I spoke about this the other day, actually, that someone was going like, you know, like you like the photo, right? Yeah, I do. It stands out. It does. It catches your eye. There you go. There's number one. And the guy that took that picture is a guy called James Miller, a good friend of mine and an incredible photographer. Like you say, shoots on tintype. So he shoots on a 160-year-old camera called Hilda. You know, he's got the cloth over his head, you know, and then, the, and then the glass comes out and he runs into a dark room and then he comes out and puts it in the water and you're sitting watching the picture develop in front of your eyes. It's mind-blowing. You know, all that shit, just like, here's what the camera got. Here's what the camera captured and what the eye of the photographer captured. So I love photography. I worked with him. He did, the, he did two shots of me last. He asked me, could he do two shots? And I said, for sure, because I'm a huge fan. I want to see the process. I went around and did it. And those two shots ended up being from Muscle Shoals and to Memphis. So when it came to this record, and, and I knew it had be, become signs of life, we'd always talked about me dressing up in drag anyway. Um, <laughs> Be so, careful, that might be the social media want, clip for this I episode. Just want to do this sh- I just wanted to do this shoot where, where I went from, you know, I, st- I started out as the very masculine 1920s Korean boxer type and then went through a series of changes where a bit of makeup went on and then a little sort of, like a little thing that you put on for a wig. I can't, uh, one of those in a robe around me. Yeah. We, you know, we kind of built our way up from masculine to feminine. So yeah, after I dressed up as Crystal, I went from the boxer, and then at the end of it, the makeup all stayed on, but the wig came off and the dress came off, and there's another picture of me as Crystal, but as the fighter again. And it's the cycle of it, you know, it was a, it was a to be honest with you, it was, I wanted to do it. That was the, what was the one? Number one, I wanted to do it. I liked the idea of it. And number two, I 100% collaborated with James Miller and Heather, or Tricity Vogue is her kind of, uh, Monica, yeah. she did the makeup between the three of us we orchestrated that little shoot just for the love of it really just for the love of it and then i saw the pictures and thought yeah i like that well it came out lovely i'm really glad that that was the ultimate choice behind it and you know you're right it is a striking image and i have to say um it makes me very happy being able to Cam, if i met me in the bar i would 100 percent <laughs> You know what? Something tells me you're not the only one who feels that way with an image like that. It really does make me happy to say that if people are loving this chat between us, that they can also hear more of you also on your podcast series, The Vinyl Supper. And I, I loved getting the chance to listen to this because knowing what a storyteller you are, it made me practically like punch the air off my fist when I saw that you finally had a podcast. And the concept of the show is that it's special because you have guests on instead of it being like a typical interview, it's framed with the idea of a meal being shared and talking about records that you play during different courses. And I wonder, how did you find doing it? Like, did you enjoy it? I loved it. One of the best things about it, Ken, was that uh, I've been off the road for a while and I, I miss the camaraderie, you know, the talk and shit with people, you know, like when you're on the road, you're meeting people all the time or, or you're with your band or you're, you know, there's always folks to kind of bounce off and, you know, riff with. Yeah, I kind of I miss that as much as it's nice to get into family life and do that kind of stuff. Um, it is also good to 
keep the lines of communication open with folks that are in your industry and do what you do or something close to what you do or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, throughout the podcast, you have amazing guests such as Josh Groban, Blake Mills, Courtney Cox, uh, Benny Blanco, a true cast of amazing people. Uh, my favorite episode was the chat that you did with uh, Chrissy Metz, best known for a role as Kate on This Is Us. I mean, that was a really lovely chat, man. I, that one really surprised me because out of all the people that I spoke to, I knew them all other than the poet Atticus and our girl here. And she was just adorable, wasn't she? Wasn't she just adorable? I, I, like, mm. after, after we stopped chatting, she kept saying she wanted to come to Scotland. So it's not on the podcast, but she was talking about wanting to come to Scotland. And I was saying, listen, <laughs> come. He's under the blue pot. Come see me. Stay with me. I look after you. I just, I really took a shine to that girl. She's a real sweetheart. I mean, I like when people ask me what it's like uh, talking to you, I always say that to me, you're a very like salt of the earth type of person. And it felt like listening to that talk that was very like, I've never met her, obviously, but I felt similar to her and that it seemed just very kindred spirits in that, which I thought was beautiful. Oh, that's a sweet thing to say. My, she's a, yeah, if I can be equated to her in any way, I'd be happy with that. Chrissy mm-hmm. Metz is a legend. Real, real really, sweet girl. A real sweet story and genuine, true story, you know, right? Wasn't that interesting when she was going like, you know, she always wanted to be a singer, but she didn't feel like she could do it. But then somehow she had the audacity or balls or, or, or vagina, actually, let's face it, to, to do acting and go into acting. And I'm going like, how did you get the courage to do acting? But you, you couldn't find the same courage to do singing, especially when she's such a good singer. Yeah, yeah, it's mind blowing. And like, I don't want to misquote her, but if I remember correctly in the episode, I think she mentioned she lived with uh, five other girls in like a two bedroom flat, just trying to like make things happen, which is like, it takes a certain type of person to do that. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, everyone sees the glitz and the glamour. And it's like, no, the people that get the experience that glitz and the glamour, I guarantee you the vast majority of them have worked their asses off morning, noon, and night, year after year, doing all kinds of shit that you wouldn't even conceive of to just make their dream work. Absolutely. One of my favorite stories, um, rest in peace to Chadwick Boseman. This is in regards to him. But prior to him being uh, in 42 and Black Panther and all the Marvel stuff, he was living here in New York and doing a lot of theater. And he was mostly trying to direct and not act. But uh he was living uptown in Manhattan. I remember reading an article about him, like him talking about his life. And he mentioned how he was so broke from trying to make, uh, to work in theater that he would wake up at like five o'clock in the morning just to walk from like the top of Manhattan to like Tribeca because he couldn't afford a subway pass. And it's just like, that was maybe like, I think 10 or 15 years ago. And it's like, it's one of those stories I think about, like here's a guy who eventually made it starring in like Marvel films and like Hollywood films. But like, if you would think about where he was prior to that, it'd be the most unlikeliest thing in the world. And let's not forget, whilst he was filming the Black Panther and was in that incredible shape and that incredibly focused on the part, the man knew he was dying. Yeah, it shatters my mind. It's, it's like, it's, there's not many. There's just not many people like that on the planet. There just really isn't. Nah, listen, some people are just made of different metal, man. And, I, and I'm convinced it's mental. It's mental metal. The Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the world, the, uh, the Chad Brozics of the world, the, the, you know, the Ed Shears of the world. It's mental strength that, that gets them through somehow. They're, they're no more strong than you or me. 
it's 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 so powerful and you know before i let you run here uh you know thanks so much for being so jealous here tell me so glad we had to do this i knew i had to mention this to you and it's a bit of an aside but i have to say i'm very keen to hear your voice on another dance track i was listening back to when you were on rudimentals too and never let you go i used to like travel with them a bit and i hadn't listened to the song in a while and re-listening it to recently i was just like i was just struck in the moment about like how well your your voice fit within that context like that that was insane to me well listen you get me the hippest baddest ass dance <laughs> guys in the world and i'll sing anything you like just send me the track and i'll sing on <laughs> did you ever hear that did you ever hear the um the, the make uh uh, what was it called? Blood. We're blood. That the uh, Ilium is it? Ilium. It is Ilium. He did a version of a song that I wrote with a band called Bioga, and I made my and John McFade and Johnny Coffer, and yeah, he did a like a wild dance version of that, and it's I love it. I think it's I think it's great. I love all that shit, man. I think there's two types of music in the world: music that is made with truth and honesty, and music that isn't. Music that's made with the want for something else. Music that's made to a formula. Yeah. You know, as the great Charles Bukowski said, you know, as the spirit wanes, the form appears. And I'm less interested in form, way more interested in spirit. And that comes through on that truck. And even when, um, I mean, people could go see this on YouTube, but I had forgotten I watched it again recently. You ended up performing that rudimental track with them on Jules Holland. That's like, right, yeah. What was that like? I never had a chance to ask you about that. You know what? It was like any other gig, really. You show up, you kind of do your sound check, and you know. But it's t- it's TV, so it's all very kind of you know very well rehearsed throughout the day. And my jo- my only job was I wasn't in the band or anything, so I, my only job was to stand there and sing the song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was easy enough. But yeah, but it's funny. I've been on Jules Holland twice, but never with my own shit. Oh, when else were you on there? I was on the Snow Patrol. I I did some uh, like they did. A, an album called Fallen Empires just before the last record. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. I did some almost sort of Arabic vocals type vibe in, in the background of their track. So they had me on replicating that. Oh, that's sweet. I'm going to have to go check that out right after this talk. Wow, that's really fucking cool. And I have to say, Foy, it was a pure joy getting to chat with you again. And a, a big thing for me, I love knowing that you'll be here in New York sooner than later. Um, it'll be mentioned in the intro, but I'll just gladly say it again that you'll be playing Rockwood on November 16th. Amazing room, and that's going to be a beautiful gig. So if you're listening and you're in New York or even Connecticut, New Jersey, or wherever the hell, just come on through. That's going to be an unforgettable show. Or California, or Oregon, or <laughs> Alabama. Just come <laughs> along. Good crack. Get yourself a flight. We'll have a good night. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.